Hi, this is Sarah. If you like this episode of Let's Talk About Sects, you can listen to my audiobook, Do As I Say, How Cults Control, Why We Join Them, and What They Teach Us About Bullying, Abuse, and Coercion. The audiobook will be available on Audible, Apple Books, Google, and Kobo from the 28th of June. A link is in the show notes. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. David Freeman was handed over to Anne Hamilton Byrne at the age of two when he went to live with the other children at the family's Lake Eildon property. It took 12 years before he was rescued by the police and given his freedom. At 15, he vowed not to tell anyone about his childhood in the notorious Victorian cult, and it was a promise that he kept for 25 years. Welcome to Let's Talk About Sects, a podcast about cults around the world. I'm your host, Sarah Steele. Before we start, a content warning. This bonus episode deals with abuse, trauma, and mentions of suicide and addiction. Please use your discretion as to whether this will be suitable for you and those around you who may be listening to. I received an email earlier this year from a man named David Freeman, who was writing to me from Reykjavik in Iceland. He'd recently broken his silence around his childhood, which was spent in the cult of Anne Hamilton Byrne. You'll remember the family from the very first episode of this podcast, and if you haven't heard it, or if you don't know much about the family, it's worth a listen before you hear David's story to give you some context. When David came out of the family, he was 14 years old, and he wanted to blend in. The media was saturated with stories of the blonde-haired children and the abuse they'd suffered at the hands of Anne and the aunts. David decided the best way to deal with the situation was to keep it to himself. He grew up, travelled, and eventually ended up in Iceland, where he still lives today. He had three children, and he continued to avoid questions about his own childhood. But in spite of running from his past, the repressed traumas of his early years eventually caught up with him and he found himself in the throes of methamphetamine addiction. David has worked hard to get his life back together, and decided to share his story with the Icelandic newspaper Fretabladeth in February this year. Finally, he was ready to share his story with an Australian publication as well, and I'm sure you'll find it as moving as I did. I guess, yeah, everyone who, who ended up in, in the family and the situation that you were in had very different backgrounds and had some or little knowledge about how they ended up there. So I, I did wonder how what you found out about how you came to be there. Yeah, that's actually a, that's actually a fairly grey area. Um, I guess I don't really know exactly. There's perhaps 
two angles to that story, one being that my mum gave me up voluntarily and the other story is that she was coerced by Anne to give me away to make life easier for herself and and that sort of thing and I I guess I tend to lean towards the the latter of those yeah I mean mum mum says that it was the it, it was the the latter as well she said that she was more or less coerced into um you know surrendering me into the family I mean you know Anne was I don't know from what I from what I have learned uh, you know she was you know, collecting a certain type of child or, you know, she was she was looking for kids that were, yeah, suitable for what, you know, for her, her plans for the future and so on. And I, I guess I somehow fitted into that category of child that she was looking for or something. And otherwise I know fairly little about that and I have been sort of reluctant to ask my mum any more about it. And also I, I'm I'm not really curious, I guess. But, um, yeah, I, I imagine that I was just, you know, yeah, I, you know, she, she was coerced into giving me to the family. Mm. And so um, was she was she actually involved herself at all? Yeah, absolutely, yeah. She was, um, I think I think my grandparents discovered the, the sect, the cult, when they were living in Melbourne in the Dandenongs. Um, and, of course, you know, my mum, followed in into the cult as well and so yeah I was more or less sort of born into that as well I guess when I was two years old I, I went up to Eildon you know the, their headquarters for the, for the children out in the country there in Victoria. And you were there until what age what were you what age were you when the when the place got raided? I was the second youngest of the children there I was uh, I was 14 when the when the police came raided. Sure. Right. And so that sort of whole period of your life, had you been under the impression that Anne was um, your mother? Yeah, that's a, that's a, that's a good question. It's, a, it's strange, but I always had an idea as a child. I mean, I was a very curious child, a very curious child, and I read absolutely everything I came across. And um, from a very early age, I had a very strong feeling that that woman was um, not, you know, not my mother at all, although she claimed to be. And I and I felt no love or connection to her either. I don't know how that came to be, but I, I just I felt that she wasn't my mother. I suppose if you were with your mother until the age of two. Yeah, I'm, I mean, I have no prior memories of my mother, of course. I think I was too young. And also that, you know, I had such a traumatic childhood, I think you, I think you delete a lot of memories somehow. I had no, I had no memory of my mother at all. Yeah, and I wonder, I wonder if you just had some sort of an inkling of it just from those early. Well, the the older of the children say that I, you know, when I was taken up to Eels and that I for a long time I cried for my mother. So I, I you know, I don't recall that, but that's the old the older children have told me that. Mm-hmm. Mm. Right, and so it's not like your mother was one of the aunts or anything like that. No, no, absolutely not. I mean, she stayed at. She stayed a, a member of the cult, well, you know, until I met, almost until I met her at the age of 16. Oh, right. Yeah. So there were a good couple of years after you'd left that she was still very involved. Yeah, yeah, that's that's correct. You kind of told me a little bit when you first got in touch about your life after the police raided and that you 
ended up in, did you, was it state care you said? Yeah, I was actually the only of the children who stayed in state care until until I became 18. I, I, yeah, I spent, I spent four years in government care and I was the only child who did. And, you know, I mean, it took the social workers and those people like a, a, a while to find my parents. And when they did, I guess I, I still didn't want to make any commitment to my mother and, and I was happy where I was. I don't have, you know, I, I don't have any bad memories of being in government care. It was, it was good for me. It was, it was what I was used to. And I think it was just, um, just a comfortable situation for me as a, you know, as a teenager. What, what does that involve government care? Uh, just, um, I stayed with the other kids for, I don't know, about a year, some of the, you know, the older kids, and then that all disbanded. And then I went into, I was moved into, uh, you know, homes for, yeah, a home for, for, for troubled teenagers and, you know, you know teenagers with, who couldn't live with their parents for, you know, a, a number of reasons. And it was, it was a small setup. It wasn't sort of, you know, we were only six, about six kids living together. And um, it was very, it was very amicable, and it was um, it was nothing. Yeah, as, as I say, I have no, no bad memories of that at all. Right, and you mentioned it kind of was just in the media everywhere, and impossible to escape from that side of things. I went to a, a normal high school in Melbourne for the first time, you know, at the age of fourteen, and then at fourteen, and and even fifteen, it was just all over the news every night it was on a current affair it was just you know an endless barrage of court cases and interviews and and I I wanted to distance myself so much from that I didn't you know I wanted to fly under the radar so to speak you know I just wanted to be a normal kid again I just wanted to be a normal teenager and I didn't want that stigma attached to me you know that cult member stigma and I took a decision at the age of 15 that I would never tell another person about my childhood. And I stuck to that for the next 25 years. I didn't tell another soul about my childhood. Uh, and I just fabricated a, you know, if people asked about my childhood. I just fabricated a very simple story, you know, that would not attract attention. <laughs> and you think that may be fed into your decision-making in uh, whereabouts in the world you wanted to live? Uh, yeah, I think it's I think it's no coincidence that I ended up on the other side of the planet. <laughs> yeah, I just even even my connection with the older kids just disappeared, and I didn't really want to have anything to do with them. I just didn't want to have any, you know, I I didn't like it when people dwelled on my childhood and you know wanted to delve into it and discuss it. And I guess it was just it was so convenient to jump on a plane and. Um, you know, moved to Scandinavia and, um, you know, start a different life where no one knew where I came from or a thing about me. And, you know, that served me well for many years. Well, Iceland is a beautiful place. Yeah, that's that's for sure. And, and you know, I, I, I came from sort of a rural life anyway. So, you know, coming to a, a small city like Reykjavik was just ideal. It was perfect, you know, just that small town living and as I say, you just fit in and avoid any sort of questions and, and um, 
yeah, I sort of, I did manage to fly under the radar for, you know, quite a number of years. Yeah, and I, I mean, obviously keeping that to yourself for such a long time and, and it's got to impact your relationships in terms of not being, feeling free to share certain aspects of your life with other people who you care about. And so why is now the time that you feel that you're more able to speak about this and engage with that part of your life? There's a number of reasons that brought me to that decision. Um, I guess one of the main ones was that I'd been lying for 25 years, or, yeah, over 25 years about my childhood. I'd just been lying. I'd just been, as I say, sweeping it under the carpet. And um, that takes a toll on you. You really can't ignore something that big. And I'd been lying to people, the, the closest people in my life, like the mother of my children and, and just everyone, you know, and, and I guess I just wanted to stop that. And I also waited for my children to become a certain age. You know, I didn't, I because, you know, that the article was printed in the newspaper and I wanted my children to be of a certain maturity to be able to digest that sort of information about me, you know. My two oldest kids, well, they're, they're over 20 now. So I, I thought the timing was fine. And, and also I just guess I just had an urge to, to talk, <laughs> finally talk about my childhood. I mean, it's, it's such a big thing to ignore for, you know, decades and decades. <laughs> so, yeah, that was really what pushed me to, to go public about it. And, and also just the fact that, you know, I mean, it might be of aid to other people, you know, come from a, a similar childhood, you know, people who exit cults, there aren't, I don't know if there's a, a ton of information on, on how they feel afterwards and, and all that sort of thing. And I thought that if I shared my experience, it might serve to help others, you know, who come from a, a similar background. Yeah, and I, the the work that I've done with the podcast has just completely opened my eyes to um, how many people are in those situations and how many of these groups are out there. I had really no idea because I think a lot of people don't really talk about it completely understandably. It's um, I mean, it's funny, you know, you don't you don't ever meet another cult member, you know, <laughs> it's, they're not they're not all over the place, <laughs> and I think there's also a distinct lack of experience with dealing with cult members you know people who have experience with you know dealing with cult members that's certainly the case over here in Iceland you know this is a population of 350,000 people and um, you know mental health professionals I don't think they have any training or experience with dealing with cult members that's certainly my experience over here I, I stopped talking to psychologists years ago because you know it just I was always referred to psychologists who had absolutely no idea of where I came from and it was just uh, it was of no use, you know, talking to them. Yeah, this is a really big problem and it happens with a lot of people I've spoken to. They'll try and get therapy and it's such a, a niche uh, specialty, I suppose. Yeah, I mean, the closest I've ever got to some sort of help that was beneficial was, um, you know, talking to a, a, a guy who had training in America with, uh, you know, former soldiers, and 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 he had training dealing with um, PTSD. And he sort of he sort of understood me better than anyone else. But apart from him, yeah, people had no no idea with you know how to deal with a you know an ex cult member. 
Yeah, and PTSD is fairly common amongst former cult members as well. Do you believe that that's what you've been experiencing? Yeah, I I actually have only just recently come to the realisation that PTSD does factor into the list of problems that I've suffered from over the last couple of years. I never really knew that. and But, um, you know, when I read about PTSD, I kind of, I guess I found that I ticked a lot of boxes there. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And you had sort of found other coping mechanisms. Oh, absolutely, yeah. My major coping mechanisms for the last, I guess, five years have been, you know, have been, um, you know, turning to drugs and alcohol. When 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 you don't really get any assistance in the way of, um, you know, mental health. Um, help help to do with your mental health, I guess. Yeah, yeah I, I guess I just turned to, to you know, substance abuse. And, yeah. Unfortunately, that was the only way that, um, you know, I could deal with reality and, and life in general. Yeah, I think that's completely understandable. And does that mean, I mean, when you were in sort of government care more immediately after coming out that there wasn't mental health support on offer it's funny you know i <coughs> people have asked me this a lot how, how did it go you know how, how was the support network and considering it was 1987 i really have to take my hat off to the government in australia i, I think they did a fantastic job i mean maybe i was lucky because i was still only 14 you know it was maybe easier for me to, you know, I mean, I still had my teenage years ahead of me and it was easier for me to make some sort of recovery, maybe a bit easier than the older kids. But, um, I mean, they did organise psychologists. They were incredibly supportive. I, I, I wanted nothing to do with psychologists. I was, I was too hell-bent on being a teenager and catching up for what I'd missed out on. But, um, yeah, I mean... I had to I had to take my hat off to them, you know, even the police, the social workers, everyone, you know, I, I can't really say a bad word about them, I guess. Oh, that's well that's really positive. Yeah. So I guess it, it's more the ongoing mental health care that you could have used. Yeah, I mean I I yeah you know, the legacy that the cult left me with, you know, made for a definitely made for a difficult adult life. I was fine as a teenager and into my late teens even, but yeah, when I entered adulthood, that's when that's when uh, things started to change and difficulties arose just in normal daily life, you know. And um, that's when I really should have sought some assistance or, or help in, in some way, but I, I didn't do that. I was fairly tough in my approach, and I just sort of soldiered on. I really did for a long time and, you know, even raising my kids, you know, I just ignored everything that I was feeling and, they, you know, I just pushed it away and, and just kept going. But doing that creates problems as well. You know, you have major anger issues and um, frustration and all sorts of things like that. You know, I experienced a lot of anger as a, you know, as a young, a young adult male and frustration and, and so on. And, I had trouble dealing with that, and you know that would come out, you know, in all sorts of ugly ways. But yeah, it sounds completely 
understandable that you would have a lot of anger and it's just maybe that it's kind of being directed in um, ways that it shouldn't be. Or Yeah, and the thing is that, you know, you haven't told anyone about where you've come from, so no one can offer any sort of understanding or, or give you a discount in any way, shape or form, you know what I mean? So, <laughs> so you know, you, that's, that's what I mean. You do You do create problems by not telling anyone about your, you know, your childhood. Which is such, which is the most important period in your life, you know, your formative years. Yeah, there's just no way that that can't have had major impacts. And then even I wonder, you know, having your own children and seeing them as these vulnerable young things and knowing what adults did to you in your life, that must have been. Well, that was, that was, I mean, yeah, that's, that's been fascinating because that really like having raised three children of my own that sort of really served to put my own childhood into perspective and you just it just I took me a long time but it just sort of dawned on me yeah I guess when my kids were fairly young still and I just you know I realized I could I could compare my childhood to theirs and you know all of a sudden I, I realized how brutal it was my own childhood it was you know I just, you know, I started to think, you know, how could people treat children like that? You know, just a complete lack of love, affection, any sort of emotions that most parents show their children, just a kiss goodnight, a hug, a compliment, well done, you know, anything like that, just a complete lack of that in my childhood, absolutely cold and just brutal. And, and and inflicting violence, you know, and I just realized, you know, because I totally turned the tables when I was raising my own kids, you know, I I was, uh, you know, hell-bent on, on giving them everything that I had missed out on, raising them to be confident, happy kids, you know, balanced in every way. And, um, you know, I look at them today and I'm, I, you know, I can stand back and, and sort of feel slightly proud of, of how they've turned out, and I didn't perpetuate that cycle of violence, you know, which does happen, which does happen, yeah, quite often. But you know, I managed to turn the tables, and I mean, I, I just, you know, I went to great extremes to make sure that my kids didn't suffer. I would pick them up as soon as they cried. There was something about the sound of crying which I had done my entire childhood. There's something about the sound of crying that I just couldn't stand. I just couldn't listen to it, and you know, I was told off by kids mum picking them up <laughs> as soon as they cried but I just I just couldn't stand the thought of my kids suffering in any way you know even today if I hear a child crying there's something that really it, it tugs at my heart <laughs> you know I just can't listen to it yeah and I mean even on top of all of that cruelty and the horrendousness of the the situation then coming out of that into a high school at the age of 14 with other kids who'd had more regular upbringings, there, there must have been aspects that you just didn't understand about. Oh, I felt like such a foreigner. I felt I felt like such an outsider when I went to a school for the first time. I don't know what about it, what, what it was about me at the age of 14, but I managed to fit in fairly quickly. I think I, think I was so keen to you know, just be a normal teenager. But uh, I, I do remember my first few days at school and it was it was slightly terrifying as well, you know. Just the volume of children around me was, <laughs> was huge. And um, 
Yeah, I mean, I mean, I was lucky. I went to, I got a scholarship to a, a very good private school in Melbourne, just because my education was quite superior to you know the average child. So, but I was, I was lucky in that respect. I didn't get you know put into a, an enormous public school. But yeah, I mean, it was terrifying. It was daunting, but um, I was adamant about fitting in, and and I managed to do that, you know, fairly quickly. You must have had some really good social skills. Yeah, I don't know where they came from. (laughs) (laughs) I've got no idea. But I think I was just, you know, I think I was just, yeah, something of a chameleon, you know. I just sort of (laughs) managed to blend in. And, And as I say, I was lucky that I was only 14. So I did have a bit of a, I, I had more of a chance than some of the older ones, I guess. Mm-hmm. You you didn't stay in touch with any of the other children in the end. No, I've, I've I, yeah, I mean, I I love some of them too. There is, yeah, there 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 are one or two who I who I'm, I guess I have been closer to. I'm not close to any of them at, at this point in my life, but. Yeah, there, there's one or two, and and that was um, yeah. I mean, I loved Sarah, the doctor, Sarah Moore. Mm, you know, yeah. Sarah Hamilton Dunmore, the the doctor who passed away. Unfortunately, I, I loved her, and I was close to her because she was just wonderful, and and she played such an instrumental role in getting the ball rolling with the social workers and the police to get us out of Eildon. You know, yeah. She she sort of sparked the investigation, I guess, and I loved her dearly, and. And there was another woman there who who became a psychologist, and and she she had a very good understanding of human behaviour, and 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 she sort of helped me a lot in Australia when I uh, when I had anxiety. I you know I had, I had I developed really really serious anxiety, and I didn't even know that there was a word for that condition, and and she told me. You know what was wrong with me, and um, so she sort of helped me as well. But um, I guess I wanted to distance myself from the group as well when I was younger, and even now that hasn't really changed. I'm sort of happy to be away from all that. Yeah. So even um, you know these uh, lawsuits around the estate of Anne Hamilton Byrne, you haven't ever had any interest in getting involved in any of those kinds of things. No, I've always refused to take part in it. But um, this, the most recent one, after Anne passed away, uh, they managed to convince me, and, and they they just signed me up mm-hmm. to take part in the in the legal action. You know whether the lawyers are um, trying to get their hands on on the the assets, the the rest of the the money and the assets that she left behind. So I mean, I, I am part of that, but you know, it wasn't really voluntary on my part. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, I guess I would hope that you would stand to gain something from that because. Yeah, I mean, in a in a way, I guess I I guess I do deserve it, and they they owe me whatever is coming my way, you know, I, I shouldn't really, I, I, I don't really feel that way, but I, I never wanted to sue her as an individual. You know, I never, I never really wanted any sort of uh, financial aid from her. The most important thing in my life has been that I got my freedom, which I'd prayed for as a child. You know, I really had seriously prayed for that and I got that freedom. And when I got it, I ran with it and I just embraced it totally. 
and I, I milked it for everything it was worth, and and that was all I wanted. That was my my wish was to be free. As a young boy out there, I just I knew that that was also wrong. I knew that there was another life out there. As I said, I was so curious. I read everything, and you know, I just put two and two together and realized that that life up there was was not normal. And so my freedom was enough for me. I didn't need any money or anything like that. Yeah, right. So it was sort of the the day that the place got raided. That was like your your prayers being answered. That was something you'd been waiting for to happen. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And it just, I mean, it was a bit of a shock at first, but I think it was about half a day and then I was like celebrating it. It was just, uh, it was fantastic and I really had prayed for it, you know. Yeah. Did all the other children feel the same way or were some just quite discombobulated or...? Yeah, it, it took it took the others uh, quite a long time to adjust, and I guess I, I can't really speak for them, but um, I just I just remember that it took me a very very short time to to realize that I was free again. I could eat real food, I could make friends, I could learn to ride a bike. You know, I'm just it was just oh, it was just like. Every Christmas in my life had come together at the same time, you know. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that was fantastic. That sounds like wonderful, like a fantastic approach, and you could really focus on the positive. But then these anger issues, I wonder if. Well, that was that. That was the legacy that you know, all those years of violence and mistreatment had left me. Yeah. Yeah, but you weren't really focusing that anger on Anne Hamilton Byrne or, or wanting to get any kind of like restitution or. Absolutely not. No, I was never interested in that at all. No, I mean the anger was just. I didn't. I didn't really know how to deal with the anger. I didn't know where it came from, and I didn't know how to deal with it. And I didn't really. I managed not to to vent in a direction, you know, in other people's directions. It was. It was mainly to do with myself, and just a, a very, very, uh, yeah self-worth and self-respect and all all of that was very very limited in my life yeah um, but I, I I managed not to make other people suffer around me you know when I was a, when I was angry that seems like a common you either go two ways with that stuff don't you you externalize it or you internalize it yeah yeah and you know it would have been extremely easy for me to start fights all over the place and, you know, it was very tempting at times, but I managed to curb that as best I could. But, I mean, yeah, I would just, I would break things around me and, you know, I I was, I had a very short fuse and, yeah, it was just, um, I guess I was, I guess I was just angry with myself a lot of the time. Yeah, because that's what happens when you're, you know, raised as a child and no one, tells you you've done a good job or that they're proud of you and all that sort of thing and it's only really recently that I can look at the things I've achieved and what I've done and my children and all that sort of thing and you know actually look at all that with a a sense of pride you know yeah that's that's absolutely right a child needs to have that that kind of positive affirmation and attention to develop that sense of self-worth yeah I mean you just have to uh, you know I, I it's the same when I was raising my kids I just wanted to them to be confident and feel good about themselves and yeah it was very important for me to 
to say nice, to, you know, to support them and, and tell them when they'd done something that they should be proud of and if they'd done a good job. Because I, I knew, I could see those things were sorely lacking in, in, in me. Mm. And um, I wondered about your relationship with, with your mother since that time. That's a very valid question. I mean, that's, that's a very, that's a very, uh, you know, I mean, that's an interesting thing for anyone who's studying the psychology of cult members and, and children in, in cults, I guess, because I was very blasé, you know, the social workers, yeah, after, after the police raided the property, the social workers were flat out trying to find our parents and they had a lot of trouble in many cases. And that was the, the case with me as well. And they eventually found my mum, who was a nurse in London. And I was indifferent. I didn't care. I'd never had a mother and I never, I'd never needed a mother. I'd never, I'd never had a maternal figure in my life or anyone who, who I considered to be, you know, a mother. And I, they found my mother and eventually she came back to Australia to meet me and I recall very clearly meeting her for the first time. I was 16 years old and I met this woman who was my mother and I just had no connection to her. I just, I just, yeah, as I say, it's something to do with not needing a parent, you know, having gone without parents all my, well, you know, as long as I could remember, I just, uh, I didn't, I had no need for a parent, you know, at the age of 16 when I was, relishing being a teenager and enjoying my life of freedom and I just remember looking at this woman and yeah just having no connection at all and that took a long time to change and today we are extremely close I love her to bits and and she's very warm and caring and, and loving and yeah but it took many years to 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 get to the place that we're at now but yeah, it was it was interesting to to think that it wasn't, you know, hugs and kisses on the first day. Yeah, you're you're not seeing a person who's been a mother to you at that point in your life. Yeah, as I say, you know, I had, you know, I just I was used to carers, in government care, and that was all I needed. I didn't really need people to hug and kiss me. <laughs> I wasn't used to that sort of thing. You know, it was a it was a very foreign concept to me. You know that sort of affection and love and yeah but it it did it did happen slowly with my mother and it was it was it was nice to be able to feel that way and and today I the relationship is very strong that's wonderful mm. and she I mean she must have had to deal with a lot of um psychological fallout as well from the whole thing absolutely and that's one of the reasons why I don't interrogate her about my childhood and how I came to be in the hands of Anne I just have I, I've always had too much sympathy and and it was really strange when I left Eildon when the police took us for some reason I just instantly forgave everyone around me for all those you know the women who inflicted those punishments on us for for the 12 years I was there I just forgave everyone instantly it's quite it's quite bizarre but I just never held the grudge and that's why I couldn't sue Anne or do any of that because you know I mean I just forgave them as I said earlier I just I had my freedom and that was all I wanted I'd been given what I wanted most in life 
um, and the same with my mother. I just, I just forgave her on the spot. I just couldn't ask her any questions. I wasn't even curious. I was just, yeah, I was lucky because, you know, I, I think it's good to live with that sort of, I think it's important to be able to forgive mm. and move on, you know. Mm. I, yeah, I entirely agree, but it, it still isn't necessarily a thing that comes easily. So that's no. quite an incredible response to be able to have. Yeah, and I, I do get a little bit of criticism from people. They don't understand why I'm so forgiving towards the women and towards my mother. They think that, you know, I should be up in arms over the whole thing, but that's just not me. It's just not, you know, it's just, that's just a waste of time and that's just more crap that I don't need, you know, in my life. Yeah, yeah, and that's what they say. And often holding a grudge does you more harm than the people you're holding it against. Yeah, I mean, it's just more baggage. It's just, yeah, it's good to be free of that. Yeah, and I guess, yeah, I can I can understand um, forgiving your mum and even the aunts, I suppose, because they were really yeah. under the spell of this woman. But I, I find it pretty incredible that you could forgive Anne. <laughs> But that's, I mean, that's a good point you make right there. I mean, that, that has always been my understanding of it as well, is that they were, she had so much influence over their lives to a ridiculous point. She just controlled them. You know, when they weren't looking after us, they, you know, they, they were on two-week shifts. They came up to Eildon, looked after us for two weeks, and then they went back to Melbourne and they were made to go into nursing. For two weeks so you know they never had a break they hardly spent time with their own kids and you know I knew that even as a, a young boy shortly after I was freed you know I could see that you know she just tortured these people and I wasn't the only one who'd suffered we kids weren't the only ones who'd suffered the adults had suffered in incredible ways I mean you just you know you, you just have to look at the statistics you know and, and the occult members and you know, the people who committed suicide and, and the family she absolutely destroyed. I mean, that woman has blood on her hands like no one quite maybe comprehends. And that, you know, that today, that angers me slightly, you know. Mm, mm, right. I mean, really, technically, she does have blood on her hands. People have to remember that, you know, how much damage she did. Yeah, and it, it is like there's that really tricky question around um, personal responsibility and, and, and coercive control and what people do under coercive control. It can be a, a really sticky one for a lot of people. Yeah, and it was a different era. It was the 70s and the 80s and people were looking for direction. People were, you know, that spiritual enlightenment thing was very big and, you know, people were looking for a guru or, a, you know, a direction in life and, yeah. People were more susceptible, I guess. So, yeah, I, I, I really I got to the point where I actually really felt sorry for the, the women who'd, who'd been responsible for my broken childhood. I actually felt sorry for them. And, you know, like if I'd met them in the street, I, you know, I would have hugged them. That's a, it's a really generous perspective and I think that's really impressive. I see that a lot with people who've come out of cults. They've done things that they're incredibly ashamed of having done, but they do feel like that it wasn't their choice or they had no choice in what they were doing. Yeah, it's, I mean, you know, she was a, she was very convincing and very persuasive. She managed to get all sorts of clever intellectual people to do quite horrific acts or, you know, take part in, in things that, 
who were very morally questionable. <laughs> it's quite amazing the power that she, she wielded. Mm. Some of the other former children I know had really complex feelings about Anne because they had viewed her with some form of love and some form of hate at the same time. I think Sarah wrote about that a bit on her blogs, but you don't sound like you had any real conflicting feelings about her. No, I think as a young boy, I maybe felt closer to her. But as I grew up, I guess when I sort of reached maybe 9, 10, 11, I, I sort of started to realise that there was something quite wrong with that woman. She was promising us things that she never delivered on and she did that constantly, you know, the, the, like promised us that she would be with us over Christmas and, you know, year after year she, she wouldn't show up. And just It was just things like that that just sort of made me see her in a different light and I realised that, yeah, everything wasn't quite as squeaky clean as she was trying to make out and... I, yeah, then I, I really started to lose any sort of connection that I had with her. And by the end, I just, I guess I, I, I started to see her as a quite a nasty, evil woman. And so, yeah, I, I never wanted anything to do with her as an adult. Some of the other kids got in contact with her and, and visited her and that sort of thing. But I just... I never really wanted anything to do with her. I didn't hate her or despise her as an adult, but I I just realized that she was she had problems, you know, mentally and, and that she was delusional and yeah. That's probably not someone you could really talk to in any sort of logical way. So yeah. It was good to get just get her completely out of my life. Yeah. Did you have any particular feelings when she finally died? <laughs> Absolute indifference, I think. <laughs> Absolute indifference. I just, it was like a neighbour had died or something. It was just, ah, I just had no, yeah, not happy, not sad, just complete indifference. That's the only way I can describe it. <laughs> <laughs> That's really interesting. I suppose she'd kind of been there with her dementia for such a long period before that as well. Mm. I mean, I, I just, I, I couldn't feel sad. I mean, as I say, she just, she destroyed so much around her, and I'd, I'd realised how much damage she'd done. You know, even people like my mother and just the families that she'd ripped apart. She didn't deserve any sympathy from me. She certainly didn't get me. But um, yeah, yeah, it was, it was interesting. I was over here in Iceland, and it was just another day. You know. <laughs> Life goes on. <laughs> yeah. I'm sure some of the others were celebrating a little more than you. Yeah, I can I can imagine that. And, yeah, there was a bit of that sort of sentiment in the air, I guess, that uh, ding-dong, the witch is dead <laughs> mm. <laughs> sort of sentiment. But, um, yeah, I didn't, I didn't feel like celebrating and I didn't feel like mourning, mm. you know. <laughs> sure, sure. Are there any things that you think people in, in general society get wrong about those who've been in cults or things that you think people might not realise about the experience of having been in the family that you could share? I think it's such a complex uh, way of life, you know, to, to grow up in a cult. It's, it's quite foreign to anyone who hasn't had that experience. And that's, that's what I mean when I talk about, you know, psychologists not really having an understanding of, of the trauma and, and 
and because it's a it's a different I mean it's a different type of abuse you know it's not it's not you know we don't slot into a category you know like a, a rape victim or a, a victim of violence you know what I mean or anything like that you 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 sort of you slot into a totally different category that not everyone comprehends and I, I think that does need to be a lot more education about you know people who you know understanding victims of, of, of sects of, of cults yeah and you know even myself I guess I don't really understand fully how I am today and my way of thinking and yeah I, I guess I'm I'm still learning about myself and and reading the side effects of your formative years in that sort of brutal environment yeah it's um it's very important that yeah there's there's more dialogue concerning the uh long-term effects of uh growing up in a cult and that, that you know i mean it, it's the long-term effects i mean wow they certainly haven't uh left me i'll take you know i mean that that's gonna stay with me for life as i say that those are your formative years i mean they they shape you as an adult and uh, you know now I can understand how I was as a young adult. I can understand why I was angry, why I was frustrated, why I was perhaps socially awkward, and that that's that's um that's something I've struggled with immensely. You know, is uh, I don't really struggle with it so much today, but yeah, as a younger adult, you know, I really felt like a fish out of water. You know, I just I just had so much trouble fitting in. I guess you know and. Yeah, I, I really did feel socially awkward, and even today I, I avoid groups. I feel quite lonely in a crowd of people. I isolate to the point where it's probably not <laughs> not so healthy, but um, yeah, that's my coping mechanism as well is is to isolate and 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 just yeah remove myself from other people. Mm-hmm. Are there other long-term impacts or, like, did it take you a while to be able to build up physical affection with others or that kind of thing? Well, in terms of relationships with women and, and, and that sort of thing, I've I've struggled immensely with, with that as well. Uh, I, d- I don't know, maybe I have trouble with that sort of long-term affection and, yeah, I think I'm having not learnt that or even witnessed that as a child I think that's had uh, an incredible impact on my ability to uh, nurture a relationship these days. Yeah, or as an adult, yeah, I, I've had a, a, a very hard time maintaining relationships. Um, I guess the you know the the love really just sort of comes and goes quickly with me, and and I actually yeah I've, I've actually had a lot of trouble feeling love for another adult it was very different with my kids that was instant and and it never wanes you know it just it's always there um but when it comes to you know loving another adult i just yeah i I think i've had a lot of trouble uh finding that and that's yeah that's definitely that can only be a long-term, you know, impact, a uh, long-term effect of, 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 you know, what what my childhood left me with. Yeah, you, you don't, you didn't learn to love someone and you didn't learn to receive love. 
and 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 that's the other thing I'm I'm sort of awkward with as well is is receiving love, and even receiving compliments. You know, I'm, I'm very I have trouble with that. That's to do with your your own sense of self worth and and you know yeah that sort of thing. And you mentioned feeling quite lonely in a crowd. I, I wondered if you maybe were particularly sensitive to controlling situations or anything like that. Yeah, I I've, I've sort of always been an individual because of my childhood and you know. I think that comes from when we, when we were up at Eildon all together. The, the, we the kids we weren't close. There was no. I, I wasn't close to anyone. I, you know, speaking for myself, I wasn't close to anyone. I didn't really have friendships or relationships. You know, with the other kids up there, and it sort of it sort of I guess it molded me as an individual. And I've been like that through life as well. I I don't have a desperate need for friends in my life and and that sort of thing and you know conforming and all that sort of thing and so today I stay away from trends and fads and and any sort of conforming and groups that follow a certain thing you know I I I, I really stay away from that and um yeah I, I kind of yeah I guess I sort of consider myself to be a bit of an individual and, and yeah so I don't, yeah, that's why I, I guess I feel lonely in a in a crowd. Mm. I also wondered, I guess, now that you've been speaking more about this, this period in your life and, and sharing it with other people, has it allowed you to become closer to some people as well, to be able to be open about those parts of your life? There are people, you can sense it in people who you meet, people who you 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 sense that they can digest that sort of information. You know what I mean? And <laughs> strangely enough, I find it a lot more in women than men. And I think it's, I think it has to do the way I see it is that women have a, a ton more insight than men. So like even today, you know, I, I have very, very few male friends and I, I tend to sit down and talk with women a lot more than I do with, with men. I mean, you don't, you don't really discuss mental health and <laughs> emotions and feelings with blokes. <laughs> you just, it just doesn't happen, but um, it happens. It's uh, yeah, it's, it's much smoother, you know, discussing mental health and that sort of thing with, with women. I mean, they, it's a shame it doesn't happen more with men as well. Yeah. But that's, I mean, it is a, a solid fact. I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's, I've seen it. I work in construction, so yeah. I mean, you know, you don't you don't stand out on the building site and um, start to give mental health. <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah, but that's why I yeah, it's quite interesting. You know, even even when the article went to print here in Iceland about my childhood, I got feedback. Most ninety percent of the feedback was from women, and yeah, it was that was a very interesting statistic <laughs> and um, it came as no surprise but uh, yeah as I say I, I find it much easier to talk to women about this how did that how did that article come about what was the publication it was just a spur of the moment thing I just thought I've just got to you know go public with this in the biggest way possible I mean I don't really I don't I don't really do things it's sort of all or nothing for me so yeah, I was just uh, you know on the front page of the Saturday paper over here, and yeah, as I said, there was no baby steps. It was just all or nothing, and um, yeah, I just I just found it was time, and 
I researched it in my mind, sort of, and knew exactly what I was going to say. And and I spent the week tweaking the article with the uh, journalist. You know, I had to make it. I was a little bit controlling. <laughs> you know, I, I had to make it perfect and, and say exactly what I wanted in my words. And it was fantastic when it finally came out. I mean, it was it was actually a bigger experience than I had, um, you know, imagined. It was quite emotional, you know. On Saturday when it came out and I hadn't really realized how many people would be in contact with me and, and even people who'd who, who weren't in contact with me anymore due to my you know substance abuse you know drugs and alcohol you know people had walked away from me I've lost you know I'd lost friends all over the place and you know those kind of people were back in contact with me and and that was just you know I wasn't prepared for that it was uh, it was a very it was a very emotional 24 hours <laughs> was huge just hearing from people who'd written you off and all of a sudden they had like a, a better understanding of me and and you know I was I was incredibly open and honest in the article you know I wasn't trying to pretend that I was a saint and you know I'd, I'd listed all my flaws and all the bad things I'd done and how I dropped the ball when when the kids were younger and when I was just you know feeding my habit and not really caring about anything else and yeah but it was a necessary step, and I, I certainly don't regret it. And, and yeah, it's as I say, it's it is quite therapeutic to open up a dialogue, you know, especially when you've pressed it for that long. It's just that's not healthy. It's like you're manu- manufacturing a, a, a an emotional volcano, you know what I mean? And that's that's what it was like that Saturday, you know, the, the volcano. <laughs> it erupted. Mm. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. Fit, fitting. Yeah, it was very very. Very, yeah, emotional that day. Maybe, well, I don't know. Did you have fears that people weren't going to have such a positive response and were their responses in any way surprising or um, pleasing, I suppose? Yeah, I I really did it for myself. I, I, I did it for myself. I knew that I had to do something for myself and I've never really, throughout my life, I've never really done a lot for myself. I've never really been been good to myself I've, I've sort of beaten myself up decade after decade and I just I really did it for myself I knew that it, you know I needed some therapy in that way and I wasn't really thinking about feedback or anything like that and that sort of that sort of blindsided me a bit the feedback and it was it was all positive except for the the odd <laughs> criticism that I I should be angry with my mother and, and that sort of thing <laughs> Which I, which I which I just I don't comprehend that, but anyway, I mean, I understand that some people feel that way. I think you have you have the right to have any response that you feel is appropriate. <laughs> yeah, I mean, but you know, I myself, I I just I don't feel any anger towards my mother, but I could understand how people might question that. You said you stopped getting any kind of um, psychological help quite some time ago. But you you did this for yourself, knowing that you needed some, you needed to do something for your mental health. No, I've I've never I've never chased up help myself. I had major mental health issues over here for a short period of time, and you know I ended up in the psych ward at the hospital, and they would always refer me to psychologists, and I just never really made any headway with them. I would definitely not pay to get any counselling over here because I, I just don't think that there would be any benefit 
and I, you know, I've, I've always had, I've always had a, an inclination to deal with my own problems, you know, like take them on myself. And that's the same with like giving up alcohol and drugs. It has to be a choice. You know, you can't do it because someone instructs you to do it. You have to get to that point where you actually want to give up drinking and taking drugs. And that's the same with my emotions. I, I guess to some degree I can control them or I can come to terms with them and, and understand them. What, um, was there something that happened or did it just reach a certain point with the addictions that you were able to, to come to the, the point where you wanted to change that? It was, a, it was a combination of things. I was in a very toxic relationship as well over here with a woman and that was um, a relationship that I should have walked away from a long time ago but I didn't have the foresight to do that. Uh, I sort of suffered from that and then, you know, due to that suffering I turned more to drugs and alcohol as a coping mechanism and then the combination of that drove me to a fairly poor state of mental health and that's how I landed in the in the hospital with suicidal thoughts and, and all that sort of thing going on so yeah that um I mean unfortunately I'm over that that's part of the past but um yeah that was that was probably the ugliest part of my life since since my childhood you know, going through that and how long ago was that um, it wasn't so long ago. I mean, I guess that's, I guess it cleared up about two years ago. Yeah. But, um, yeah, I was just, I was in and out of the hospital and, um, you know, just with you know, severe anxiety and depression and, and so on, you know, combined with substance abuse. Yeah. It was a fairly, uh, fairly bad cocktail going on there. Do you feel that you have the right support around you now to be okay yeah but more than anything else I think I'm just at much more at ease with myself and I think that's far more important I think that um, you know I've come to terms with things I've been able to get rid of the drugs and alcohol which was a huge influencing factor in um, my mental health and yeah, I've just sort of done a, done a fair bit of work on myself and I have had some wonderful people in my life who've, you know, assisted me and, you know, they've even they've even kept tabs on me when I've gone back into drinking or whatever and, and that's been, I'm not used to that, people actually caring about me and, and looking out for me even when I'm misbehaving. So that's, that's helped enormously. I've had people who've just actually pick me up and drag me out of, of a situation that I shouldn't have been in. I'm incredibly lucky for that. Oh, it sounds pretty incredible that you've kind of reached this point yourself and are doing all of this work yourself without really any professional mental health support to get you to this point. Yeah, I just, I guess I've always, uh, well, I guess, you know, I, I, get, I guess at one stage I came to the realisation that you know, if I was going to mend mentally, I would really have to do a lot of the work myself. And that's that's that kind of sums up my life as well. If there's something wrong, you can't depend on other people. You just have to fix it yourself. 
and that that was part of my childhood even like I, I didn't have any anyone to help me support me so yeah I mean luckily I've been good at um, mending what's ever broken in my life not 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 fantastic at it but I've always given it a go and I think that's been of great benefit to me yeah yeah and I guess it's just that like if one of the things that you were thinking was helping you was just to kind of suppress all of this stuff and it took you like you did that for 25 years I think you said yeah yeah to to even come to the realization that actually talking about it and 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 putting it out there in the world is what I need to do Mm. I mean I think that's right like generally people who I speak with who've taken the time to really delve into it and and it's it's awful and it's traumatic and it's hurtful to even think about but once you start doing that it it becomes much more healing yeah over time yeah but for you to realize that that's what you needed to do kind of by yourself without any mental health professional telling you to do so I think is pretty impressive and as I said before you know you do you do sense it in other people when they understand what you're talking about you know I've gone through life hiding it because simply due to the fact that people don't understand my childhood and when you do find someone who does understand it's it's quite a wonderful experience to be able to talk to someone about it who 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 understands and they can see they can they can see that you know they have an ex, an explanation for the for the person in front of them who's talking to them, you know, they, 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 they can understand your character and, and your flaws and, and all that sort of thing. And that's, that doesn't happen very often in my experience, but when it does happen, it's, it's fantastic because talking about it is, yeah, as I say, therapeutic. Yeah. And I guess also speaking about it publicly, it kind of, it does help more people out there understand that this is a thing that people can have been through. Yeah. And it's actually more common than you might ever realize. Yeah. Yeah, it's incredibly complicated. And you know, even even you know, even at the age I'm at today, you know, I'm I'm still as I say, I'm still coming to terms with what I went through and and the the adult that I am today. It is incredibly complex. We just don't fit into one category cult members. Mm. And there's quite a big difference as well between someone who you know was born in or kind of never chose to join as well to someone who like kind of chose it for a certain period of their life and then chose to come out. Yeah, that's right. I have, yeah, that's right. That's definitely not my experience. Yeah. I just, uh, I just, my first memories of, of the cult and, and, and the 12, the first 12 years that I remember of my life, such a, such a huge, such a huge portion of your childhood looking back on my life with, uh, slight sense of pride today you know i mean that's it's also to to be able to bounce back from 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 that that um such a long period of of pain and upheaval in your life to be able to be some sort of a functional adult is some um, is quite amazing really a hundred percent and and like you said before um not kind of continuing the cycle with your own children is really really impressive yeah i mean i can be i can be proud of that i mean even i'll admit that that i mean it would have been incredibly easy to raise my hand to them incredibly easy and but 
I don't know what it was in me that stopped me from doing that. It's, it's, it really is fascinating. And I don't, I don't even understand that today myself, how I managed to, to turn the tables and give them the polar opposite of a childhood from what I experienced. Yeah, I wish there was a way to figure out what that was with you because that 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 cycle of trauma and violence does happen with in so many instances, and it'd be great to know how to how to seize what you managed to do. Yeah, I think I think the you know the only way I can the only way I can understand it is is that I I just took everything out on myself. Like as I say, I broke things around me. I destroyed things. I I think I was just angry at myself more than anyone else you know I wasn't particularly angry at the world I knew that that was um, a waste of time but yeah I just took it all out on myself self-hate and loathing and all that sort of thing and yeah well maybe maybe to a certain degree that was that was better than um you know punishing other people yeah but it's not it's not great either is it it's not healthy no (laughs) no it's not healthy, but I mean, I'm in a different place today. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm a lot easier on myself. Good. I am sort of made peace with myself. Good. Mm. I did wonder if there were things in your life that you think that you appreciate more having had the experiences that you've had or, you know, things that maybe those of us who haven't had your experiences, you think maybe we should appreciate more in our lives. <laughs> yeah, that. There is an endless list there. I just, <laughs> and that has to do once again with getting my freedom. So, you know, I, I only prayed for one thing as a child. I didn't, I wasn't particularly religious, but I did pray for my freedom. And I just saw the world in a new light as soon as I got it. And I just, you know, I just, just things, especially in nature. That I just, I just, um, you know, I'm even today at my age, I'm just still in awe of, 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 of the things around me. Just simple things. Like what kind of things? Simple things that can be taken for granted, you know, like um, just the beauty of nature lakes, rivers, streams, the weather, <laughs> just everything, everything like that. It just, um, you know, it just fascinates me. And yeah, just, just beauty. The beauty in nature. I've always been into art as well. I've, I've, I've always been into drawing and painting, and yeah, I've sort of I like to I like to draw anything to do with nature. And like rural Australia, for example, I just I think it's absolutely amazing. It's just so beautiful. I just see beauty in things. I guess that other people don't really notice. And yeah, I guess I've gone through life since I was 14 I just guess I I noticed everything around me you know I just sort of you know just that curiosity that I I learned as a child that's always stuck with me just embracing everything you see around you even even like down to other people's behavior I'm sort of curious about that like reading other people and just 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 watching I guess there's very very little that I take for granted yeah and I'm lucky in that respect because I, I see a lot of people who, who don't do that. And also that's, that, that's the case when you're involved in 
abuse, you know, drug abuse and alcohol abuse is that you stop noticing anything around you. You only have one focus in life and you miss out on everything around you. You just waste so much time when you're stuck in, in the cycle of abuse. You know, the world passes you by in such a big way. And, yeah, I just look back on the, those few years and just as a complete waste of time, you know, nothing achieved. <laughs> uh, yeah. So, yeah, I, I, I do, I guess I can, I can sense that I appreciate the world in a different way to people who grew up in a normal childhood. I'm not, you know, I'm not convinced of it, but I'm, I, I, I get that feeling. Mm. I think you're probably right. I think there's probably a lot of things that I take for granted. But it's also that 12 years of my childhood where I didn't have, you know, I didn't have anything to look forward to. I didn't love anything. I didn't have any freedom. You know, we stayed at that house. We weren't allowed off the property. And you're 14 years old and you're just given your freedom and you don't have to ask anyone if you can do anything. You just, you just do it. As I say, it's just, you know, it's a lifetime of Christmases. <laughs> you know, it's just too, it's too much. It's like, you know, a sensory <laughs> overload, you know what I mean? <laughs> it's like, you know, some sort of wild state of euphoria. <laughs> well, and I suppose, yeah, even having had a childhood really is something that I would take for granted. Yeah, I mean, I just, you know, I was just... I was just like a glutton when I was 14 years old. I wanted to do everything and try everything. You know, I wanted to see it all at the same time. <laughs> I don't think I had time to sleep. <laughs> <laughs> do you think you've done most of those things that you wanted to do? Yeah, I have. I'm, I think my, my intense curiosity has driven me to do a lot of things. that I've, Like, you know, just things like going to India and Nepal. And, you know, spending time on a kibbutz in Israel and living in Reykjavik, Iceland, you know, just things that, and I'm such a, I'm so, what's the word in English? I'm so compulsive, you know, I just, is that the word? You know, I I just, if I, if I, if I want to do something, I give it about five seconds thought. (laughs) I act, you know, (laughs) impulsive. Yeah. Yeah. I'm like that. I just, uh, yeah, I, I give something five seconds thought and then I jump into it. (laughs) <laughs> and, uh, I've got a bit of a reputation for that. <laughs> you know. That could um, serve you well or poorly, depending on the circumstance. Yeah, but I mean, the experiences, you know, like as I say, like, you know, like when I was 20 years old and, you know, landing in India, Delhi by myself, wow, it was like culture shock, but it was so good. I like being constantly reminded of how, how life is different and has so much to offer. That's the whole thing with conforming and all that sort of thing that I don't really embrace. It's just follow follow my own instincts and do exactly what I what I want. Yeah, and I've missed out a lot, you know, a lot on that recently. You know, due to the abuse and that sort of thing, you 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 don't do anything. You know, you just have one focus, unfortunately, and um, yeah, you know, you just you miss out on on life. And I'm very, you know, I'm sad that I, I wasted those few years. Well, I hope you're kind to yourself and have forgiven yourself for it. Cause... I understand why it happened. Mm. You know, I understand. I, I, I can see the, I can see the explanation for it. You know, it wasn't just a, 
uh, you know, spare of the moment thing, you know, like, I'm going to try this. That was, it was self-medicating when, when I had nowhere else to turn to. But, you know, I mean, I can also look back on it and see it as just being a, another part of my life, not be full of regret, perhaps, but rather just see it as, 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 as something that had to take place in my life. It's interesting, like, you know, I was telling you before about that toxic relationship I was in. You know, I mean, I, I could have exited that. It went on for three years, and I could have exited that at any time. But I guess being a victim in some way, you know, I just sort of, I didn't see that I had the right to leave it. Do you understand? Yeah. Um, yeah, I just, and, and, you know, and people around me were saying, David, for God's sake, leave this woman, you know, get out. You know, this relationship is so toxic. You know, I guess that has something to do with my childhood, you know, like the fact that I somehow deserve that treatment, you know. Uh, yeah, it's, it's something that's come up with a few of my interview subjects is that they've come out of cults and have gone into abusive relationships. It's, it happens quite a bit. Yeah. And I think it's that same, yeah, I guess if you don't have that sense of self-worth, it can be be easy to fall into that sort of dynamic yeah but you know having left that relationship having left the drug and alcohol abuse behind I, I i think i have a very good sort of sensor mm. you know i can see red flags a lot easier now than i used to be able to you know i can i you i if if i, if I get a whiff of a red flag you know i'm just you know i, I just walk away Good. And they, uh, it took me to this age to get to that stage, but, you know, better late than ever. <laughs> better late than ever. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I'm so sorry that you went through that. Oh, no, I mean, I think it was just, I think it was, I think, it, as I say, it had a lot to do with my my childhood and, you know, not getting over that, you know. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I only really woke up to the the idea of the, you know, the, the long-term effects after my all my mental health issues and the and the abuse you know and then I was just like oh okay I know where that's come from I can see I can see why I went down that path I mean I can remember you know trying drugs for the first times and just thinking where have you been all my life yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know I want this feeling 24 hours a day <laughs> you know I just, you know, I could, I could deal with myself. I could look in the mirror, you know. I could, yeah. I mean, it, it was escaping reality. That's the only way of. That's the, yeah. It wasn't recreational. Yeah, I'm so glad to hear that you, you know, managed to find a way out of it because I can't imagine that that is an easy thing to do. Well, it's a, you know, it's it's going to be a lifelong battle from here on in. I mean, it's not, it's not, it's never over. I'm fortunate to have people in my life who, who actually keep tabs on me and, and, and you know, especially since the article was published, you know, they, they do keep tabs on me and they're always asking me how I feel and they invite me round to dinner on, on, you know, Friday night, Saturday night when it's the most dangerous time for me. Yeah, it, 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 but I do, I do, you know, I've come to the realisation that it is a lifelong battle now. You know, I will have to work at it and... and, and diligent and mm. um yeah that's yeah. that's addiction isn't it yeah yeah that's right it, it's sort of yeah someone like me it never really leaves you you know thanks so much for for being so open and for trusting me with your story I really I appreciate it yeah and I think the timing for me has been pretty good 
to do something like this because, you know, now I have a more of an understanding of where I am today and how I got to be here. And I think, yeah, I think I, I have much more of a comprehension of of the long-term effects of, of my childhood. I've come out the other side and, yeah, so now I, I, I think it's a, it's a great time to go public with it. Mm, and you have a lot of insight into it and it does sound like you're in a much better place now, which I'm I'm really glad to hear. Yeah, yeah. It's um yeah, it's that insight, you know, I don't know really where that comes from. I I sort of as I say, I think it was just something that I taught myself or something that just came to me. And uh, you know, as as a, I have been I, I was lucky to have had such a thorough education in the in in the family cult. That's actually one thing that, you know, I did walk away with, armed with was that that curiosity, that high level of education, and that has served me very well just in in my personal day-to-day life. so much for listening and you can find a link to the Icelandic article about David in the show notes. Google gives you a pretty decent English translation. If you've been personally affected by involvement in a cult or would like to support those who have been, you can find support or donate to cult information and family support if you're in Australia via cifs.org.au and you can find resources outside of Australia with the International Cultic Studies Association via icsahome.com. If you or someone you know is in crisis or needs support right now, please call Lifeline on 13 11 14 in Australia or find your local crisis centre via the International Association for Suicide Prevention website at iasp.info. Let's Talk About Sects is produced and presented by me, Sarah Steele. Sound design and music is by Joe Gould. A huge thanks to David Freeman for sharing his story with me for this episode. You can access ad-free episodes and support the production of this independent podcast via Patreon, patreon.com slash ltaspod, or with a one-off donation or merch purchase. There's also a survey for former cult members that's feeding into the book I'm writing this year. A really big thanks to the many people who've already taken the time to fill it out. I truly appreciate it. All the details are at ltaspod.com. Catch you again soon. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, 
according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. 